Well, good morning. As the children go out, would you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, please? You'll find Luke chapter 24 in the church Bible. And I want you to turn to verse 33. So that's page 161. It may also be helpful if you turn as well to John 20 at the page 1089. If you can, just keep your fingers in uh, both passages. I've not got any on the screen today. Sometimes that's distracting. And uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, this is a profound passage indeed, and our prayer is that we'll fully understand both what happened and what you want us, the way you want us to behave as a result of it. So guide us, please, to understand why you came. Amen. So starting to read at verse 33, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now they're returning from the road to Emmaus. Phil preached on this a couple of weeks ago. They found, this is just two of them, this is Cleopas and his colleague, and they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. A little bit more than peace. We'll come to that later. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they'd seen a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do, you, do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see, I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joint amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what's written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Interesting passage. In a minute later on, we're going to sing the greatest day in history. But I don't really think it was like that for these disciples. We've been following this series in Luke 24, as I think Tony mentioned earlier. We've been looking at how the risen Jesus impacted the lives of the disciples. At least, I think that's what we're doing, Phil. That's what you said we were doing two weeks ago, and that's the basis of what I plan to say today. In chapter 24, Luke gives us three accounts, clear accounts, of the appearances of Jesus 
on the first day of history, as we call it, Easter day as we celebrate it, the day after the Sabbath, the day that Jesus rose, the day uh, three days after his crucifixion. So Justin took us through the first meeting of Mary in the, and ladies in the garden. Phil with the two on the road to Emmaus. And today we're looking at this third appearance, the disciples during the evening of the first day. So where did it happen? Well, it's in a room somewhere in Jerusalem. We don't know where it is. There's speculation. It may well have been the upper room where they'd had their last supper. It may well have been John Mark's mother's house. They don't know. If you go to Israel, they'll take you to a house. We've been in it, upper floor, and they say that's the room. How they know, I don't know. But that's a representation of where it would be. So what had happened? Well, there'd been Jesus in ministry for three years with 12. And as soon as Peter had declared that he knew who Jesus was, the Messiah, Jesus set his sights absolutely clear on Jerusalem. But you see, he infuriated the authorities with his actions, with his teaching and with his healing, to such an extent that they were determined to do away with him. And when he arrived in Jerusalem just before Passover, the where the city will be absolutely full, to be a tinderbox, he brings Lazarus back to life, and then he enters the city on a donkey, just before this massive celebration. The authorities absolutely hated him. He threatened them. They were in charge. The Sadducees had control. The temple was being built by Herod. They hated him. They were occupied by the Romans. They hated the Romans, but they believed in the temple. Temple sacrifice, this big edifice they wanted to recreate and clad in gold, that was where God resided. That's where God met man. And nothing but nothing was going to stop them having the temple built. And I think that's one of the reasons they wanted rid of him. And the Pharisees, well, his disciples did not follow the Sabbath and many, many other things. Let's get rid of him. So they arrested him. They tried him illicitly. And they got the Romans to crucify him. It had to be rushed to be done on the day before the Sabbath. And he had to be taken down before the Sabbath. And Joseph, as our fear as we know, had a cave, a rich man's cave, and he came and took the body down and he put Jesus in the cave. He'd been deserted. He said at the Last Supper in Matthew and Mark 15 that he would be deserted by disciples. He was totally alone. He had no support. He died for you and for me as we know at the most busy time probably Jerusalem has ever known. One commentator says, from the number of sacrificial lambs slaughtered for the Passover, he estimates in excess of two million people in and around Jerusalem at Passover around this time. It would have been an absolute tinderbox. And there was the Lord's Son hanging on a cross for everybody to see been taken down, he'd been put in the, in the, in the uh, 
the tomb. And this Sabbath that was not to be broken by the Sadducees and the, uh, the Pharisees, the chief priests and the Pharisees broke the Sabbath. We're told in, uh, in Matthew 27, they went to see the Romans on the Sabbath to say, we've recalled this man said he would rise again after three days. Will you post guards? And they did. They went to seal the tomb on the Saturday, the Sabbath, and they posted guards. So what about the disciples? Well, everything has stopped. For them, it was pure weeping and mourning. They would be dismayed and absolutely fearful. The account in Luke doesn't tell us, but in John, the parallel account, tells us not only within the upper room, but the door was locked. They were frightened the authorities would come for them. So they were living in abject fear. So I think the authorities were thinking of themselves. They wanted nothing to stop their rotten little deals with the Romans, to stop their temp their, the temple being developed. And the disciples were thinking of themselves in abject fear for their own lives. They were mainly together though, we know that. We're told in Luke that there were 11 together, but not in John. John says there were just 10. Of course, Judas had gone. And John tells us Thomas wasn't there when this happened. And two had wandered off during the father day after the Sabbath and were walking back to Emmaus. We know that from what Phil told us. It's the beginning, perhaps, to break up. So having set the scene, let's just look at how Jesus reached out to those who are his. These are Phil's words. I listened on the recording. Thanks for whoever puts it up. But how did he reach out to those who are his? How he impacted the lives of those who believed? It's the third time we look at it, but I want to go back and look at the earlier two as well. Justin took us through the very first meeting, very well I thought, early in the morning, when the men had gone, the women had gone rather, with Mary, with spices, for the body. No guards there. Tomb was open. The grave was empty, except for the grave clothes, as if the body had just evaporated. When Jesus had brought Lazarus back to life, he reappeared in his grave clothes and they took him off him. Not here. Jesus had just passed through the grave clothes. He wasn't there. John eventually went in and he said he saw and believed but John tells us but he still didn't understand and it's clear that none of them understood what had happened or why it happened and the angel told Mary remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee first he said don't be frightened fear not just as at the beginning of Luke the angel had appeared to Zechariah and said, don't be frightened. Just as the angel appeared to Mary and said, don't be frightened, fear not. He said to Mary here at the tomb, Mary Magdalene, fear not, but remember what Jesus told you. Well, it's still a Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered from the hands of sinners. So that's the first meeting. She thinks she's seen the gardener, according to John 20, only to discover it's Jesus. Rabboni, 
my teacher. And he gives her clear instructions. Go instead to see my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Here's the first sign of Jesus' forgiveness for them. They deserted him. But it's, I'm ascending to my father and yours, to my God and yours. These are my brothers. Go and speak to them. And that's what she did. I have seen the Lord, she said, and told them what he'd said to them. Well, now we need to look at Mark 16 to know what the response is. She went and told them, but they didn't believe her. They did not believe her. She did not believe what the women had said. If we look at the version in Luke, it's even more severe. They thought she was speaking nonsense. Total non-belief. She'd been told by the angel not to fear. Her face had been on the ground in fear. And the Lord called her Mary. She recognized his voice. She lifted her head to see the Lord. She received a clear instruction. That's exactly what she did. Even though she wasn't believed, she spoke as she'd been asked to do. Now the second appearance is the one that Phil covered two weeks ago. And it was about Clear Pass and his colleague, perhaps his wife, one of the commentators suggest, Phil had suggested maybe they went, took Jesus to their home. I thought it was very nice. And the suggestion it may have been his wife, it could have been. We don't know. We will never know, perhaps, this side of heaven. But they'd obviously left the gathering of followers. They were not disciples, but they were followers. They say they were there when Mary came back. So they were there in the room at the time. And they were discussing the events of the weekend as they walked back to Emmaus. And someone, a stranger, joined them. There's clearly no fear so Jesus didn't say fear not. He was just a man on the road, they thought. What are you discussing? And they outline exactly what they're discussing. How this Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, powerful, in word and deed before God and all people, what had happened to him? Verse 19. Verse 21, though, it begins to declare their understanding of the situation. We had hoped... He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had a nationalistic view of the Messiah. They thought that he was going to come and set the nation free from bondage to Rome and usher in the kingdom of God, which is what they wanted in their nation. This wasn't an individual thing. This was a nationalistic thing. And this verse just shows us how those around, if they'd been in the room when the woman came back from the grave early in the first morning, they were very closely connected to the eleven. So perhaps the eleven had the same nationalistic view that the Messiah would come for the nation. But that wasn't so. Jesus died for us, for our hearts. Not for the temple. How foolish you are, Jesus said to the men on the road. How slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. And then he went through exactly how the prophets in the Old Testament have prophesied about the coming of Jesus. 
Now, I'd love to know which prophecies he referred to. He doesn't tell us. If you Google prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, you get anywhere between 40 and 1,000. But we celebrate many of them at Christmas time, don't we? That he would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He'd be called Wonderful Counselor. He was from the house of David. He'd ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9 tells us. Pierce for our transgressions. Die among the wicked, but buried among the rich. And he was buried in a rich man's grave, Isaiah 53. And resurrected from the grave in Psalm 16. All these prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures leading them to understand. The authorities should understand. They knew exactly where Jesus was to, the Messiah was to come. When Herod asked, they knew it was Bethlehem, didn't they? This is fully understood. So, as I said, if they're in the upper room when the women came, it demonstrates how those close to Jesus had failed to understand who he is and why he'd come. So, if anyone here has not understood who Jesus is and why he came, you're in very good company. Because I don't think those around him did either. And I think John tells us he didn't. He tells us in his gospel, he went in the grave and believed, but he didn't understand the resurrection. But their eyes were open, the men on the road. Their hearts were burning, we're told. So they got up, as Phil told us, and rushed back the seven miles, I think, from Emmaus to Jerusalem, back to this room where they're all gathered. But when they declared their story, we're told in Mark, they weren't believed either. Doesn't mention it in Luke or John, but they weren't believed either. And it must be challenging, we must see that when we declare who the Lord is, we won't be believed either. It's quite clear. Unless the Lord's with us and appears in some form or other to whoever we talk to, it won't be believed. I've repeated, I've said before, that John tells us the door was locked for fear of the authorities. And none of them seemed to recall Jesus telling them what was to happen. And he'd been telling them for a long time. I mentioned earlier that his ministry changed. Matthew 16 uh, and, and uh, in Mark 8, when Peter declared he was the Messiah. At that point, Jesus' attention turned from the crowds to the disciples, to teaching them exactly what was going to happen and why he'd come. He'd asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter said, we are the Messiah. And from that time on, he was teaching them. But I doubt Peter forgot that. Because immediately after that point, when Jesus said, I'm going to die, oh no, you're not. And Jesus' response was very sharp. Get behind me, Satan. Peter would not have forgotten that. Jesus castigated him. And yet there they are in the upper room, perhaps with Mary and the women as witnesses, these two from the road of Emmaus as witnesses still, and still this is all just too unbelievable. They were too busy, according to Mark, weeping and mourning. They were too busy thinking of themselves. 
and what they were losing, just like the authorities were thinking of themselves and what they would lose if this man Jesus took control as they believe he wanted to. Perhaps too guilty, the disciples, because they deserted him four days before. And Jesus had predicted this four days before. Mark 14, the Passover meal, you'll all fall away, he said. Every one of you. I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And when Peter replied at that time that he wouldn't fall away, he wouldn't deny him, Jesus said, yes, you will, three times. Again, I doubt Peter would have forgotten that. I can't work out what Peter was doing here. There's a reference in the passage around verse 34 about Jesus appearing to Peter, or to Simon it says, but it means Simon Peter. And Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians 15. We don't know what that meeting was, and I think that Justin's speaking about 1 Corinthians 15 next week, so it'll be very interesting to see what he gets from that, because I'm very confused about it. But you see, they were startled and frightened when Jesus appeared. He told them he was going to come back. It seems to me he came back at a point of perhaps their greatest need, their greatest confusion. They'd been prepared for it. They didn't believe it, but the ladies came back. And then the men came out from the road. So gently, gently was this Lord saying, I've come back. Coming back, I've come back. What did he say? Shalom. And here it's translated peace be with you, but actually it means so, so much more than peace. It means harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility. He was blessing them at the point of abject fear and saying, no, no, no. You don't need to be fearful. I don't care for your welfare, for your well-being, for your safety. And probably the most stressful moment of their life of despair, mourning, weeping, guilt, puzzlement with folks they knew and trusted declaring that they'd seen and spoken to Jesus. That's when he came. They hadn't, and even though he came, still they didn't believe, verse 41 says. And so he took a piece of broiled fish. What detail? We even know what he ate. But by eating fish we knew He wasn't a ghost, and they knew that too. And he reminded them, as the angel had with the women, as on the road to Emmaus, this is what I told you while I was with you. Each time, in each of the three appearances, it's the same. I told you this would happen. Are you listening? Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, and he opened their minds to understand. Now there is a character that's not there. John tells us that Thomas wasn't with them on that first meeting in the evening of the first day. Thomas the twin. Unkindly, perhaps, we know him as doubting Thomas. Unkind, because... The other ten doubted too in just the same way until they met him. But still he's doubting Thomas, isn't he? And John, John the eyewitness to these events, declares this. 
And Thomas equally rejected these appearances of to the women, to the men on the road, and into this room. And he said, look, unless I can stick my finger in his wounds, I ain't going to believe. Now actually, I understand that. We're often asked, which disciple are you most like? And I would say, Thomas. Absolutely for me. It has to be proven. I'd go to church for 40 years. I'd hear the word preached. But I refused to commit. Mainly because I didn't understand forgiveness, which is the heart of this passage. You see, I'd accept forgiveness if it was given, but if I did it again, I'd heap it all back on myself. Any of you done that? Because it doesn't work that way. Forgiveness means the slate is wiped clean. It doesn't exist. The Lord wants nothing to stand between you and him. The devil is very cunning. It's so easy to tempt you back into heaping the coals on your own shoulders. See, Thomas was blunt and direct. I don't believe you. I want to stick my fingers in his wood. I doubt he did. But Jesus, in his kindness, a week later, John tells us, came back. He was a strong man, Thomas. He'd said only two of the references to him in John 11, so that we might go and die with Jesus in Jerusalem. He said he was bold. He said, let's all go with him. We know he's going to be threatened. Let's go. And in John 14, he, when Jesus is talking about the way, he questioned it. Lord, we don't know, where, we don't know where you're going. He would ask questions. And he did hear. But on seeing Jesus a week later in the same room, my Lord and my God. I don't think he did put his fingers in the wounds. I think he knew. But little by little, we see the women, the two on the road to Emmaus, the ten as they were then, now the eleventh, beginning to understand. And there's the declaration. My Lord and my God. So Mary looked down in fear, looked up and saw the Lord's face. We talked about, sang about seeing his radiant face, didn't we? It's just what she did. And when asked to testify, to go and see the eleven, that's what she did. She was a beacon. Clear pass. And a friend, wife or colleague who clearly not understood Jesus' mission. But he did so when it was explained to him, and he responded too. He hastily went back to Jerusalem and declared. He testified. We've seen him. That's what the Lord wants. And Thomas. Thomas who returned to the fold following Jesus' first appearance and overcame his vociferous doubts. There were strong doubts, weren't they? When Jesus appeared to him, my Lord, my God, and what about the 11 disciples? That's more difficult, isn't it? He opened their minds, verse 45 says, so they'd understand the Scriptures. And if you look carefully at verses 46 to 49, he told them the Messiah will suffer and rise on the third day. Repentance and forgiveness will be preached. You are the witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you the Spirit. That's the calling of the church. Little did they realize that this was the beginning of the church that we worship in today and everybody else around the world in just the same way, about the same God that's risen, so you might be forgiven of all you've done. 
And there's a model here for how we should behave. Strong biblical teaching. Apostolic teaching. Apostolic means teaching what the eleven said. Believing that the Lord died for us that we might be forgiven. And the Spirit will come to allow us to do these things. Just like the Great Commission given in Matthew 28. Just like the Great Commission given in Acts 1. Go and preach the gospel throughout the world. And the promise in verse 49 is this Spirit. He talked about it in John 14. I'm going to send what my Father's promised, the Spirit. But wait until it comes. And we'll probably talk later about Acts 2 when it did come at Pentecost. And so it was those 11 who built the church. Thomas, it's believed, went to India and created the church in India. Everyone else went elsewhere. But of those 11 and the 12th that came to join them, 11 of them died for the faith, it's believed. John survived old age but died in captivity. So how did the resurrection of Jesus impact the disciples and followers it wasn't easy for them was it but the beginning had to be that Jesus was a son of God that he'd come to show us the way to the father for the only way to the father we know is through Jesus and we'll be castigating years to come for saying that as a group of people do not want us to say that it does meet does not meet with the British values but we will be asked to say that. And we'll be criticised and hated, I believe, when we do. The only way to the Father is through the Son. The only way to do as he wants is to obey what he said. That's what Mary did. She went to the disciples. That was the boys from on the road to Emmaus did. And that's eventually what the disciples did. Mary went back to them. Cleopas went back to them. Eventually, Thomas accepted too that Jesus was their Lord and Saviour. He was the Messiah. And John tells us that Jesus breathed on them, telling them to receive the Holy Spirit. This is like a foretaste to me. Justin told us that the appearance was in the garden, took him back to Genesis. The Spirit is like the Spirit hovering over the water in Genesis. Can you see how it all goes back to the beginning? It's all linked up the prophecies. So what do we need to do? The arrival disciples, as I said before, were able to spread the word to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the rest of the world. I doubt they realized in this room at their lowest point that this was the greatest day in history and this is what they were called to do. But if, like Cleopas, they thought the Messiah and so Jesus had come to restore the nation of Israel, to kick the Romans out, to restore the temples, the place where God met man, where sacrifice was necessary for the forgiveness of sin, they had it completely wrong, like much else. It was their hearts that needed to change. <coughs> to accept the Lord wants to be 
in their hearts and in our hearts to be involved in all we do since he wants us to be his emissaries. There's no one else to do this but those who believe in him. Jesus made it plain to them at the Lord's Supper just four days before. He wanted them to be like a vine, to be pruned hard, become fruitful by getting rid of everything that separated them from their Lord and Saviour. And he told us they'd be hated for it, but he wanted them to testify the Spirit would be on them to allow them to do it. Just the same message before the crucifixion and after the crucifixion. So I think the Lord's telling us to build his church, purify ourselves, declare that he came that we might have life and life the full, and to ask others to come too. Because the Lord created you and me in his image. And he wants us so much to be with him in eternity. But not just us. He wants everyone. And our job then is to share that message so more come. At the very end of Luke's Gospel, we see actually Luke ending where he began. Can you remember where, the Luke, where it began? In the temple with Zechariah. Luke 1 verse 5, Zechariah had been chosen by Lot and went into the Holy of Holies, the place where the Lord was meant to meet man. And he did meet an angel, didn't he? He was frightened. And again the angel said, fear not, and told him what was to happen. That was the building. That was the temple where they believed man met God, or more accurately, God met man. And he did, but Luke's Gospel, particularly this chapter 24, tells us everything's changed. That was the old covenant. That was a time when animal slaughter and shedding of blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. But not now. As a result of chapter 24, it's all changed. For man to be reunited with God, there has to be a change in his heart. 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple, Paul tells us. This is the new covenant which has been prophesied. In Ezekiel 36, we're told, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, I'll remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. That's when it happens here. Jesus came into that room to say, stop thinking of yourselves. Take out the heart of stone. It's a completely new covenant now. I want to be in your heart involved in everything you do. It's remarkable, isn't it? Because it's Jesus who came and died for you and me so that we can be forgiven of anything and everything we've ever done. And it allows us to be reunited with God so that we can fulfill whatever he wants us to do, to be his mouthpiece. He's sending those who believe. He's the Son of God. He's welcomed 
the eternal, he welcomed us into eternal life with him. The creator of the world? That's absolutely remarkable, isn't it? He doesn't look down upon us. Jesus didn't condemn the disciples for deserting him. He knew they'd desert him. But he came back, tell my brothers, I'm going to my God and their God. Such love. So the question for us all, really, I think, is this. Mary was called. Jesus joined the disciples, the two men on the road to Emmaus. He visited the men in the upper room. He called them to serve him. When Thomas wasn't there, he came back later. When Peter, I think, was unsecure, unsure, and had gone back fishing, he went to the foreshore to get him. So have you ever been called and not responded? I did for 40 years. I sat there, but no. This faith business was too big a commitment to me. I'm happy to go to church. No, no. No total commitment. But I was called. 30 years ago this year, I was called. Eventually, I was called and I responded. And that was when I knew freedom for forgiveness. The sins were not heaped on my shoulders again. They're gone. The slate was clean. Now, I wonder if anyone's here like that, who's not responded to a call before. Perhaps you won't take communion. Well, you can today. It's here. Take it. Accept the Lord as your Savior and take it. If you do, though, do one thing for me, please. Tell someone. If you do, don't leave without telling someone. Me, the leaders, anybody, a friend, but tell someone. And if you have heard the call before and responded, can you remember what it was? Some of you will have to go back a long way. What was the call you received? And are you fulfilling that call? Or have you let it slide? It's easy, isn't it? To misunderstand what the call was or to find it too difficult to do. But look at what the disciples achieved. To them was given the building of the church. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the rest of the world. They were kicked out of Jerusalem eventually. They went to Antioch. It wasn't easy. Extremely difficult. Is he, has he changed your heart of stone to heart a new heart of flesh and put a new spirit in you. And if he has, what's he calling you to do? Are you doing it? To reach out, to declare that Jesus, Son of God, died for you and to bring you a new life and to share it with others. Well, here's the table. We're about to break bread and we're going to sing what love is this that took my place? Will you surrender again, or for the first time, that Jesus Christ who died for you, will you acknowledge him as Thomas did, my Lord and my God? Accept the forgiveness of sins which he promised he would give so that you can be reunited to the Father and seek to do his will? Let's pray. Lord, the disciples must have been so, so confused when you came, not understanding why you came. 
and not understanding what you had done. But I hope that now we begin to understand the depth of what it was that you wanted to show us, that you'd do anything to have us with you, even to death on a cross, deserted and alone, mocked by many, many people. And you do it for each one of us here. I just pray that now as we seek your forgiveness, Lord, you will forgive us, that we might worship and proclaim you to all that we know. We ask this in Jesus' name.